Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Good morning to you. It is 830 on Wednesday, April 5th. I'm Jay White and for Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, we recap some of the education policy passed this legislative session with an advocate for public schools. Then as tornado-ravaged communities look to build back, mental health experts say there is emotional damage that must be managed, too. Plus, the photography of Eudora Welty is the subject of this week's History is Lunch. Stay with us. From MPB News, this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Around half of Mississippi's annual budget is spent on education, and this year the legislature allocated an additional $100 million toward public K-12 schools throughout the state. But while it is an increase in overall investment, the effort falls short of fully funding the Mississippi Adequate Education Program. The Senate passed legislation to recalculate the MAEP and fund it completely, but that language was removed in the conference report. It marks the 16th year in a row the formula for funding public education has not been fulfilled. Nancy Loom is with the Parents Campaign. She tells our Kobe Vance fully funding the MAEP would do more to help schools than one-time money. One of the most important things about the MAEP formula is the equity provision. And that provision makes sure that no matter where a child lives, he or she is going to have the resources needed to have an adequate or a, a strong public education. When we don't fund the formula fully. That equity provision breaks down. And what we've seen is that at the local level, Mississippians want their public schools fully funded. They want strong schools for their children, and they know that resources are, are important. And so where they can, where there is a healthy tax base locally, they have raised their own local taxes to fill that gap, to make up the difference, that underfunding amount that the state has failed to provide. You know, there was a peer report that was done last year that looked at this very issue. And what they found was that over a five-year period, state funding had increased, for public education, had increased by $75 per student. But in that same period of time, local funding had increased by almost $400 per student. So that just demonstrates the degree to which taxpayers want their schools funded well and the discrepancy um, for those low-wealth communities where there's not the tax base to do that. The difference is huge. What we have found on state assessments, state tests, is that even in these districts, our students who live in poverty are outperforming their peers who also live in poverty in other states. They are outperforming their peers on a national level and in our southern neighboring states. So teachers are doing some pretty amazing work. But the discrepancies still are there, and it is 
terribly, terribly unfair to those children. Something that the lieutenant governor has been pushing this year and was able to get passed is allowing schools more flexibility and giving them funding to be able to adopt alternate school calendars. Say, instead of having long summer breaks, or instead of having one long summer break, they would have longer breaks spread throughout the year. Um, Like spring break might be two weeks rather than one. I wanted to get your thoughts on what that can mean for students and parents, knowing that in, in one way, there wouldn't be just one long gap of potential learning loss. But on the other hand, parents might be having to seek different solutions for having their child, caring for their child uh, during those different breaks that we might not have right now. What we hear from districts that have gone to a modified school calendar is that they really have um, enjoyed that different calendar. Parents seem to like it. Teachers seem to like it. Um, We don't really have good research yet to see um, objectively what the academic outcomes are, but districts that have implemented the modified calendar tell us that they believe it's more helpful to have those intercession periods at the end of every nine weeks or so where they can offer some additional instructions and catch-up time for students who are struggling rather than waiting to get to all the way to the end of the school year and trying to do that over the summer. They feel like that's more effective. Um, so uh, th- we do have quite a few school districts that are going to a modified calendar. There is some cost associated with that um, because you've got additional to hire teachers for the intercession period to do the kind of the catch-up work with students, and you've got additional uh, bus routes to run during those times to bring the students to school, meals, that sort of thing. So there definitely are some additional costs there. And the extra $100 million that was appropriated this year will help, but there are a whole lot of other costs that districts need to cover too. So I'm not sure whether... All districts, our wealthier communities will be able to fund those programs. Lower wealth communities may or may not be able to. And then on that $100 million, where do you think that should be spent in terms of improving schools? You know, those are local decisions. Each local school board, local administration knows the needs of their own students in their own communities, and so um, those will vary. The needs will vary from one district to the next, but we know as I mentioned, the mental health concerns, um, keeping some of those staff. Uh, superintendents have been telling us that they were, because of rising costs, because of inflation, um, because some of the changes that were made with the um, when the, the teacher pay raise was passed last year, they are going to be using this extra money just to avoid letting go teachers and cutting programs. Um, So they'll be using most of that to fill those gaps, but then also um, hopefully in some cases to be able to reduce class size by hiring more teachers, provide additional interventionists, continue some of the programs that have been very, very helpful that were funded by the pandemic funding. Nancy Loom of the Parents Campaign with our Kobe Vance. Coming up, as tornado-ravaged communities look to build back, mental health experts say there is emotional damage that must be managed too. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
Want to keep up with MPB? Go to mpbonline.org. Or you can find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at mpbonline. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing a doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. And for Desiree Frazier, I'm Jay White. While those affected by recent tornadoes are recovering from the damage, experts in the state say they should also be aware of their mental health. The emotional toll of personal loss and displacement can often contribute to mental health crises. Satanial Wimley is the executive director of the Mississippi branch of the National Alliance of Mental Illness. She tells our Lacey Alexander victims need to process and confront their emotional wounds just like they do their physical ones. If you're not physically taken care of, it will mentally affect you, um, especially lack of sleep or lack of nutrition. So that would be the first thing. Just take it one day at a time and making sure that they're doing the things that their body needs in order to, you know, function properly. The next thing when it comes to mental health, I would say, is to acknowledge that they have been through trauma. A lot of times we just kind of take things and we figure, okay, it happened, so what? let's move on. But they have to digest what's happened. A lot of them don't have a place to live in the future. A lot of them have lost loved ones. A community has just been through a lot, and they have to acknowledge it so that the healing process can start, even more so than just picking up the rubble and the pieces. Internally, they have to acknowledge it's okay not to be okay. That's one of the things that we as a society have a hard time dealing with, and that's what the stigma is all about when it comes to mental health, is not being able to accept that we're not okay. And one in five people actually live with the mental illness. And after trauma, we all know that it's more prevalent, especially in certain areas. So for us, I would say um, the biggest thing is to make sure that you actively take some time for yourself Find out what's going on with those around you. Even though you all, everyone is in the same boat in that area, they can lean in on each other and just do mental checks, talk about it, acknowledge the loss that they've had, acknowledge the pain that they're going through, and work together as a community to rebuild and to support one another. For those of us who are learning and for those of us who just want to be educated, can you kind of tell me why it's important for people who have been through something like this to take care of their mental health right now? So what happens, just like physical health, if you don't work on it over time, it will snowball and get worse. So this trauma can cause a ripple effect. It can cause problems all the way down the line years later if it's not addressed. So we always say if there's trauma, try to seek counseling, reach out to someone who can assist. Um, If you call 988, there are people who can tell you what to do in order to get help with your mental health, even as it stands with the crisis that's going on there. And then you can go to organizations like NAMI. We are ready and willing to start support groups for individuals in the area, for the parents as well as the individuals who are living with the mental illness, and not just the parents, I mean the friends and family members, so that they'll know how to support that individual in the future as time goes on. 
resources have been available to tornado-affected communities. The Department of Mental Health says that mobile crisis response teams are active to provide care. And the Mississippi State Extension Service is providing additional materials on how victims can cope with stress, trauma, and survivor's guilt after the storm. David Byes is the state health specialist at the Extension Service. Um, we recognized very quickly that uh, we were not up to date on the materials we needed to be able to share about how a storm and damage and something of the magnitude of what happened in Rolling Fork and across the state all the way up to Monroe County might affect the mental health of our um, our Mississippians. And so we went to work really quickly to put uh, some resources together, um, evidence-based material that um, focuses on uh, particularly children and teens and, and uh, helping them recover uh, and heal from the trauma that they might have experienced. Um, and then also some other material uh, around coping with stress following a storm. You guys were talking about the importance of recognizing survivor's guilt. Can you kind of educate our listeners on what that is and why that's important to process and work through? Yes, I'm happy to talk a little bit about that. So survivor's guilt is uh, really just that that sense that uh, many of us around the state may have felt when we heard about the storms, we heard about the lives lost, um, who um, um, don't feel like there's anything we can do. Why why did it happen to somebody else and, and why not us? Um, and and there's there's absolutely nothing I can do to change the outcome for others. Um, and I'll tell you my motivation for featuring that. Um, I, I know that it's a, broadly a problem, but I but I talked to a survivor um, in the storm who who described a situation where there were two people in the same house. Uh, one of them lived and the other didn't. And I thought um, about the challenge that that must be for the the one who survived. Uh, we've got we've got to capture this. We've got to talk about survivor's guilt, help people recognize that they may be feeling that so that they can then harness those feelings and and work through them. Talk to me briefly about the accessibility of these materials. Where can people who need these resources get to them, and why is it important to make this kind of work as accessible as you can? Right. So at the moment, they live on our website um, at extension.msstate.edu. They are also um, in the process of being printed and distributed um, across sites where, where people are affected. Um, we have a set of resources, materials that are being um, distributed to storm-affected areas and to, to areas around the storm-affected areas where people may be supporting uh, those that were impacted. We want to make it as accessible as possible, put it in the hands of people who are working with those affected by the storm as well as those directly affected. Um, so we're looking at multiple ways to get this word out. Dr. David Byes with the Mississippi State Extension Service. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Lacey. Coming up, the photography of Eudora Welty is the subject of this week's History is Lunch. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app.
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. And for Desiree Fraser, I'm Jay White. Mississippi author Eudora Welty has also been celebrated as a photographer. But there is a persistent prevailing idea that Welty simply took snapshots before finding her true calling as a writer. In Exposing Mississippi, the first book-length work to critically examine Welty's photography, Annette Trebser takes on that notion. It's the subject of today's History is Lunch at the two Mississippi museums. Trebser tells our Michael Gidry her work seeks to understand Welty as a photographer whose art offers passionately political vision of life in the South. So when I set out to write about Eudora Welty, I began at the very beginning, and the beginning of Eudora Welty's artistic work is really her photography. I ended up taking a really close look at the archival um, photographs um, to understand the total body of her photographic work and to see what was Welty actually seeing um, when she took photographs. Welty took photographs as early as 1932 and well into the 1940s. And um, she took photographs the, the majority of her photographs were taken in Mississippi. About 80% of her photographic archive is, um, is uh, of photographs in Mississippi. And so I wanted to approach Eudora Welty's photographic vision, um, and I realized that was, that was a little bit different from her fictional vision. In fact, Eudora Welty herself said that fiction and photography are two different art forms. And even though there's a lot of scholarship that looks at how the photographs echo the sensibilities of her fiction, I wanted to just like look at the photographs and say, what did Eudora Welty actually see and why did she take these photographs? And so in that work, you know, these are, like you said, photographs from the 30s and 40s, early work. How do you go about contextualizing those photographs and understanding the time and place and and perhaps the moment of perspective um, nearly a, a century you know after the fact yeah um, it's an exciting uh, it's exciting work it is historical work it's socio historical work essentially but um, you know Eudora Welty was of course not photographing in a vacuum um, especially in the 1930s during the depression. Uh, photographers from outside of the South came to the South um, during the WPA to record essentially the devastating poverty in the South um, uh, of the 1930s and during the Depression. So this super large kind of like photographic archive provides, for instance, one framework to read Eudora Welty's photographs against. Um, Eudora Welty called her first uh, published photo volume that she herself curated and selected the photographs for, uh, One Time, One Place, Mississippi During the Depression, a a snapshot album. And so she herself um, kind of like uh, pricks this this other larger national archive um, of photography. And so the question becomes, um, how do her photographs resonate with this kind of work? How do they differ from this kind of work? Um, What did she see from an insider's perspective as a Mississippian in Mississippi? You know, one of the things that um, becomes obvious fairly quickly just by studying her uh, photographic volume, One Time, One Place, where she herself selected uh, the photographs that go into this book, uh, was that um, of the 100 photographs in the book, um, 78 are of African-American subjects. 
And so there is um, clearly some sort of intervention in the way of what we see and who we see in Mississippi and how we see the people in places of Mississippi. You mentioned looking through this vast archive of, of photographs. Um, you can't include all of them. Um, so how do you go about curating it? And then how do you put it together in a in a way that, I guess, tells this overarching story of, of Welty as a photographer and her perspective in, in, in that art form? The FSA uh, photo archive is, is immensely huge. I think it includes more than 150,000 images and so on. This is indeed overwhelming. But the other thing that's really interesting to me in the book is like, what was Eudora Welty's photographic vision? Who taught her how to how to see, how to you know how to photograph? What did she like and what did she not like? And actually, um, reading all of her interviews and looking through um, her essays for any comment here and there about photography, I learned very quickly that Eudora Welty sort of positioned herself. Uh, with and against two female photographers of her time. One was Dorothy Ullman, who was a photographer who worked in the picturesque um, tradition of photography, sort of the soft focus photography, who tried to capture the people of of Appalachia and the Gullah people. Um, And the other one is actually... Berenice Abbott, a major photography in American photography history, to whom Eudora Welty sent a letter of application to study with her in 1934. And these are clues that reduce the vastness of, I don't know, photographic visions available at the time and zoom in on, on, on the kind of vision that Eudora Welty actually preferred. And what I want to show people is that Eudora Welty sort of selected a modernity of vision that she um, did not agree with the kind of like backward-looking um, picturesque um, depiction of, of poor people, for instance, but um, by Berenice Abbott, who had studied with Man Ray in Paris and was only 10 years older than Eudora Welty. She was sort of like a real contemporary that she looked to her for... Um, for a, a modern photographic vision, so uh, that's that's one thing I do to to limit the um, the scope of mm-hmm. photography. I look to Welty herself and what she liked and what she didn't like. In addition to Welty, you you've also done extensive work in uh, on Faulkner and and you teach Southern literature at the University of Mississippi, but. Your beginnings are in Hamburg, Germany. So I have to ask, <laughs> how does someone from from Hamburg become so engrossed in Southern literature um, to the point where here you are in Oxford, Mississippi, teaching Southern Southern literature? Yes, <laughs> it's a long journey. And um, indeed, I studied um, Southern literature at the University of Hamburg, and then I wanted to see the place because I thought, well, this is a very interesting place, and there are lots of things I don't understand about Mississippi, reading the work of William Faulkner and uh, Richard Wright, and also um, also Eudora Welty. And so I wanted to come and find out what this place is for myself. And I'm still here, and I'm fascinated um, with the place and the people, with the culture, 
and um, I'm still a student of the South, <laughs> even though I'm also a teacher <laughs> of the South. But I am a student of the South who, you know, for me as a researcher, trying to figure out what a place is and where I live is the most interesting question possible. And so here I am, and I'm having a really good time, and I'm feeling very privileged and happy to be here. Well, Annette Travzer, professor of English at the University of Mississippi, presenting Exposing Mississippi, Udara Walty's Photographic Reflections. Uh, it's part of the Department of Archives and History's History is Lunch. Uh, thank you so much for, for taking some time uh, to, to share this research with us. Thank you for having me. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 